on WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have breaking news. Okay, not breaking for everyone, but breaking for me, and it's broken. The water broke. My daughter gave birth to a baby boy this morning. Thank you very much. I Thank you. I'm not sure the clapping is for me, but yes, <laughs> six pounds and five ounces, although uh, she lives uh, in an African nation, and so... Well, she, your daughter. She, my daughter, not, and she, and it's her, he, and, your grandson, and he, my grandson, and uh, my uh, uh, son-in-law. Uh, they live in Mauritius. He is Mauritian, and of course, uh, when the text came, it was in kilograms. So there I am looking for how do you multiply whatever that's two point eight by two point two, trying to figure out how big the baby is. Uh, everyone is healthy. Uh, they're in staying in the hospital for another day because at least there's a protocol in Mauritius. They stay for 24 hours anyway, and everyone is happy, and Grandma is there. Uh, she's super excited, and uh, Kenny's family, of course, is very excited. Uh, we have three previous grandchildren, all girls, so this is going to be an adventure in, well, a new adventure for us, and very exciting. So I know that you, Buzz, are expert at all of this. Any advice? Uh, you know. Our... Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't mean didn't, didn't mean to send you a hard question in that direction. Well, no, it, be, it begins with uh, how about spoil? I think that's the right piece of advice. Uh, spoil the grandchildren. Okay, good idea. Buzz Leah Newman, who is with us, uh, you are world's leading expert in children's books. Yet another Newman. Yes, this Yet is another this, Newman. Yes, I love the emails that come from Leslie and Newman. Newman to Newman. <laughs> maybe we'll call. Maybe we'll give that for the show note headline today. Uh, so we do have with us Leslie and Newman, who is a prolific author, a poet, children's book author, and adult author as well. She has some eighty-three published books. The most famous of which is, I believe, uh, Heather has two mommies, and. Well, congratulations again. Your books have been banned again. I, again and again. So congratulations on that. Uh, Leslie is with us today because it is a momentous a day for her in the publishing world. She has three new books published, two of which have a publication date today. Congratulations. That's amazing. 83 books published is amazing. New contracts for new books. It's all quite astounding. And you have a a big piece uh, that you are involved, a big uh, presentation that you're involved in considering Matthew Shepard, your your poetry about Matthew Shepard. That collection is uh, just one of the most moving pieces of literature I've ever read. Leslie Newman, thank you so very much for being with us. I'd love to know two books published today. Let's hear about those. Well, I'll talk first about The Fairest in the Land, which is about best friends, Benjamin and Annabelle, and they're playing dress up. And Annabelle asks Benjamin what he would like to be, and first he wants to be the bride, and then he wants to be the ballerina, and then he wants to be the princess. But Annabelle also wants to be the princess, so what are they going to do? I don't know. Tension rises. And I don't know if you want to give a spoiler alert or not, but it is a children's book, so people are going to read it over and over and over again. Maybe you could tell us, how does it come out? Well, there is a happily ever after ending because they both get to be the princess. Why not? Who says there can't be two? Right. I'm interested in this part. First of all, it's brilliantly illustrated. The writing is, of course, fabulous. 
Uh, I love, 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 love these illustrations and how it all works. I love the illustrations that are the entire page of the book, and then the script is over it, and they are beautiful. The writing is just spectacular. I was interested in this. Uh, In your uh, publication history, which is long and distinguished, um, sometimes there are references to Heather has two mommies, and often there is not. And on the cover of The Fairest in the Land, it says, from the author of the best-selling Heather Has Two Mommies, Leslie and Newman, uh, illustrated by Joshua Hines, is it? Um, why put, and why does it have, from the author of the best-selling Heather, Heather Has Two Mommies? It's not huge, but it is on the co- cover. I'm wondering if that is intentional. I assume it is. So that is a marketing decision and the publisher's decision, and I really have nothing to do with that. I mean, the choice would be that, obviously, they think that will sell more books. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but it also, you know, it puts it in a, in a, it shines a special light on it, that this is going to be a book that maybe has something to do with LGBTQ issues, which it may or may not. I mean, it's about a little boy who wants to be a princess. Who knows how he's going to grow up? Right, but it also speaks to something that happens a lot, uh, which is kids play dress dress up. That's what they're doing. And uh, the adults may have a reaction to whether they're in gender-specific uh, dress-up mode or not. The kids often kind of miss, miss all of that. At least that's my experience. It's, well, exactly. And one thing that's – the book has gotten really great reviews, which I'm grateful for. But one thing they talk about is there are a few books where – one child is pretty, you know, going along gender lines, right? She's a girl. She wants to be a princess. And this boy wants to be a princess because often what would happen is if the boy's the princess, then the girl has to be the prince. But no, I'm not doing that. You know, everybody gets to be the princess because who wouldn't want to be a princess? When you started to write The Fairest in the Land, did you know how the story was going to evolve and how it was going to end? Or did you just start to write and it takes on a life of its own? Or it took on a life of its own. Oh, it definitely takes on a life of its own. In fact, you know, this is probably, this finished text is at least 25 drafts. I mean, it, it's very different than how it was when I started. Is there a uh, word limit that you have in mind when you're writing a children's book? Well, you know, the the guidelines are really well, they used to be 1,500 words and under. Now they're like 500 words and under. I mean, it's really, really pared down, which it's wonderful to be a poet because, you know, we're used to thinking in, in few words. But, you know, there are exceptions. Um, but basically, one thinks more about number of pages, which is usually 32. But in this case, it's 40 pages, which is wonderful because there's a lot more room. And that, again, is the publisher's decision. Well, talking about publisher's decisions, one aspect of children's books that I've been fascinated to learn about is how the authors and the illustrators don't necessarily collaborate, don't even necessarily know each other, and occasionally are really good friends. What's the story on this book, The Fairest in the Land? So again, one has to trust one's editor. So I have never met Joshua Heinz. Of course, when I heard that he was the illustrator, I went to his Facebook page immediately, right, and went to his website to just kind of get the lay of the land and see his style. And I think he was a perfect choice. But yeah, and the way I look at it is a picture book is like a movie, right? So 
the screen screenwriter thinks this is my movie. The star thinks this is my movie. The director thinks yeah. this is my movie. Right? I think this is my book. Joshua <clears throat> thinks this is his book. My editor mm-hmm. thinks it's his book. So it's you know you have to really let go and just let the process evolve. And it, you know if if Joshua had given me these pictures and and said write a text if it was backwards, I wouldn't want him over my shoulder saying no no I don't like it like that. I want it to be like this. So you really have to. It's a great Buddhist lesson in letting go. I also think it's a great lesson that people take ownership of the book. Mm -hmm. You're the author. I think you get to say, it's my book. But I love the fact that other people look at it and say, it's my book. Exactly. Especially the children who read it. Right, right. And I, I, I do recall when after, this goes back many years, my our house burned down and it was rebuilt. And I heard, we had this wonderful crew of, rebuilding the house and I heard one of the people there talking to his partner one day and said um, I'm building this and another day I heard another uh, member of the crew saying ah, it's my house and someone else said uh, uh, really uh, I'm, I'm doing all this so we got everyone uh, t-shirts at the end said with a sketch of the house that Dale drew and it says I built it on the front and on the back, it says the back of the house also sketch with a little help from my friends. Oh, that's great! And every, everybody took ownership, and I assume that's really actually important for a successful book. <coughs> well, you know, the thing is, one has to remember we all have the same goal, which is for the book to do well, and not only to do well, but for the book to do good. Meaning that you know it needs for me at least. It, I wanted to do good in the world. You know, I know a book like this can be very important to a little boy who maybe isn't getting the support he needs to just you know put on a princess dress. Speaking of grandsons, ours Kai, when he was little, he loved wearing a princess dress. His mother bought it for him in a used store. She brought him in, and she was looking for something for herself, and he saw that, fell in love with it, and everyone who came in contact with Kai. And they lived down in uh, in West Hartford, and they were surrounded by ESPN people. They were all really supportive of this little boy who loves to dress up as a princess. It was the most heartwarming thing. And when you just said that, it brought a big smile to my face because we remember. He's now 6'5 and a freshman at <laughs> Oberlin, but uh, he loved being a princess. I think that part of that is the freak out, at least in years past, was, oh, my God, my child is going to be gay. Since that is less of a stigma, I think that probably the freak out is less. But I'm wondering what your experience is with audiences and editors, Leslie and Newman. Well, of course, people who choose a book like this or come to an event where I'm talking about a book like this, I'm already preaching to the choir, right? So so there's that. Um, You know, last night we were watching um, Rachel Maddow and, you know, I was just crying watching the news with all that is happening with all these incredibly hateful laws that are being passed in this country. So, you know, a book like this is needed more than ever. Mm. That seems to be not even arguable. Um, I have, do have a question based on what you just said and what, Buzz comment, what Buzz's comment was, and that is when you set uh, pen to paper to write this book, did you have in mind telling a story? Did you have in mind primarily doing good? I'm wondering what the process is in your mind for creating this book, which is, I, I tell listeners, this is a wonderful book, The Fairest in the Land. So really what I'm doing when I write is manipulating language. That is what my focus is on. I'm not really thinking about the message, 
the plot comes later, story. I'm really just playing with language, especially when it's written in verse. And this book is? Yes. And is there a verse that is obvious to the reader that we that say, oh, yes, this is iambic pentameter, this is sounds like a... Uh, t- tell us about that. Well, it's basically mm-hmm. rhyming couplets. So... Um, let's get dressed up, said Annabelle. Who would you like to be? A dancer, Benjamin declared and leapt up gracefully. I'll be a ballerina in pink slippers tied with bows, and I will wear a two-two-two and dance upon my toes. So you see, two-two-two, for example. You know, I'm always very conscious of language, which is, it's funny, it's, it's not talked about that much. People talk about characters and plot and setting and message, and I'm all about language. Do you ever find yourself stuck for a word or a rhyme when you're doing this? I, I, and I ask this because um, the first poet who really influenced me was Dylan Thomas. And it seemed to me when I was reading him in high school, I said, wow, the man just is so amazing with language. It's ama- I'm just astounded the way it must come to him so easily. And I was reading a biography and it said, and then we saw the notes in the in the in the margin, I need an I am. <laughs> I need another syllable here. It, it's not so easy. Tell us about the way you resolve those kinds of writing issues. So, you know, the the goal is to make it look effortless, but there is a great deal of effort put into this. And uh, the simpler something is, I find the harder it is. And yeah, I will just kind of sit there with my head in my hands saying, oh God, I need another rhyme for uh, C, right? That's a very simple word. So I wound r- rhymed C with gaiety, which I thought was brilliant <laughs> on many <laughs> levels, <laughs> right? They wrote into a they rode in an enchanted coach until they reached the sea, then built a castle in the sand that rang with gaiety. Right? It is brilliant. It is brilliant. It is. We are talking with the brilliant Leslie and Newman, uh, who is only a relative in spirit. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about her two books with the publication date today. We'll let you know about her reading here in Northampton, and we're going to talk about considering Matthew Shepard as well. We'll be right back. She never wore socks, she had a pet snake, she bought her a guitar, and she ate a whole cake, and there wasn't anybody there to tell her what to do. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. 
Where Were These Books Banned? Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Flamer by Mike Corrado. Not at Broadside. Broadside Bookshop, Northampton's long-standing independent bookstore on Main Street in Northampton since 1974. As Northampton's Pride Parade goes by Broadside this Saturday, Broadside will indeed feel enormous pride in being part of this community. Keep in mind, you can order any book on the Broadside website and have it delivered to your door or pick it up at the store. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, And what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with world-famous author Leslie Newman, most famous, I think, for Heather Has Two Mommies. She has many other brilliant books for children. Uh, Her collections of poetry, I think, are moving beyond description. She will have a reading, a presentation of her newest books. There are two published today. So, and I got, it, I got it wrong before. Which two are published today? So today is the book birthday of The Fairest in the Land and The Bobka Sisters. And I Can Be Me. Was published in March. Okay. So it's still new. It mm-hmm. is very new. So let, let's, we were talking in the earlier segment about The Fairest in the Land. I Can Be Me has some similarities, but... It's obviously its own story. Tell us about the inspiration for I Can Be Me and its relationship, if any, in terms of your creative process with The Fairest in the Land. I was on a panel with Maya Cristina Gonzalez, who is the uh, illustrator of the book, and Kyle Lukoff, who's also a children's book writer. He is a transgender man and activist. And we were talking about LGBTQ picture books, and I learned so much from the two of them. It inspired me to write this book called I Can Be Me, which is just a celebration of six children who are doing all kinds of things. Um, and you can't tell the gender of any of these children, and they are all free to uh, dig in the sand, wear nail polish, um, build towers, sing lullabies, play with trucks, and they're just being their true selves and, and having a great time. The story, th- again, I'd like to know, is the story in your mind, w- because it is a story, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. True. Um, do you have that in mind when you sit down, or again, does the story evolve as you begin to know the characters? So, you know, they say that there are two kinds of writers, a plotter, which I am not, 
and a pantser, which means you fly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, is plotter T-T-E-R or D-D-E-R? Well, it could be both, actually. Okay. Um, but anyway, I fly by the seat of my pants. And, you know, I've heard writers say completely opposite things um, when they're asked this question, do you know the end of the book before you start to write it? And one writer will say, of course, how else could I write it? I wouldn't know where I was going. And another writer say, of course not. Why would I write it if I already knew the end? There's nothing to discover. I like the description of not so much for children's books, although this may apply, uh, that when you have a character, you're not so much writing the dialogue as you are taking transcription of what they're saying. I think that's what you're saying about your creative process. You're taking transcription of with the characters that you have come to know and, and of course, have created. So... If you're lucky, like my beloved late friend Patricia McLaughlin used to say, a story comes along and taps you on the shoulder. And that's what I wait for. Want to read a little bit of uh, I Can Be Me? Sure. And again, there's six young people in this book. And by the way, what ages do you think uh, or do you intend this book to be for? So this is a, a, both of the books we've discussed are pretty young. I would say... Um, two to six. That's interesting. Two-year-olds, you think, get it? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's hear a little bit. I can be everything I want to be. I can be all of magnificent me. I can, I can put on old blue jeans and dig in the dirt or paint my nails silver and pose in a skirt. I can decorate birthday cakes 12 layers high or build 20 towers as tall as the sky. I can aim for the basket and practice my throws or wear a pink tutu and twirl on my toes. Ah, tutus in both books. (laughs) (laughs) I got a thing for tutus. (laughs) I can dance around the room when I'm filled with delight or ask for a hug when I'm trembling with fright. So there's also emotion in here that's not just activities. Do you have the characters in mind when you start? Do you know how many there are going to be? Do you have some sense of who they are in the world? So in a book like this, you know, with, again, such sparse text, um, it's really up to the illustrator. I originally thought of it as just one character doing all these things. Oh. But, you know, the illustrator, who works very closely with the art director and the editor, felt the book would be richer and fuller with a group of kids, and I absolutely agree with that. One aspect of children's books that interests me is the way in which kids want to hear the same book over and over and over again. And I'm wondering if that, I think it's a fact, plays in your mind when you're creating the book or not. Well, I definitely think, especially when a book is written in verse about how it sounds out loud, and I actually read it out loud. I read it out loud to my cat. I read it out loud to my cat. and, And what kind of feedback did you get from the cat? You know what? This cat loves poetry. She absolutely (laughs) loves poetry. In fact, when we go to the vet and she's in the carrier yowling, the only thing that calms her down is me reciting poetry to her. Seriously. Well, we should note that coming up later on the show, we will have the author of a book called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Uh, what What kind of reviews did you get from your cat? Um, She likes both of these books very much. (laughs) And the cat's name? Mitzi. Ever done a book on Nissi? What's her name? Mitzi. Mitzi. M-I-T-Z-I, Mitzi. Mitzi actually does appear in a forthcoming book of mine. 
<laughs> Did if you? Mitzi didn't like it, it would be catastrophic. It would be catastrophic or a catastrophe. Yep. <laughs> okay. I'd like to turn to the third book, uh, The Bobka Sisters. Want to tell us about that? So The Bobka Sisters is, again, all about language. The Bobka Sisters are named Esther and Hester. They One of them has a cat named Lester, and one of them has a dog named Chester. And they are having a competition. I, you know, I don't have a sister, but I hear that sometimes sisters can be a little competitive. And so each You've read about that. I have read about that. Um, think they make the best bobka in the world, so their neighbor, Sylvester, is the bobka tester. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, in Yiddish, the word for sister is shvester. Oh, so there you go. There you go. So when you conceived of the bobka sisters... Did you conceive of it as a story that would involve competition among siblings? Did it have that kind of uh, intent to, to let kids hear about how siblings work out their differences and their competitiveness and yeah. their sibling rivalry, I suppose, which is what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And it took me a long time to write the book because I couldn't figure out the answer. <laughs> but then I did. <laughs> yeah, well, I think most of us who have siblings... Uh, spend a lifetime trying to figure exactly. out the answer to that. Right. Exactly. We, we allow the competition to fester. Fest, a fester. I like that. Uh, Leslie and Newman, I'm looking at your website, and it says right under your name, Changing the World One Book at a Time. You, you write with purpose. That's uh, true. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. Well, my goal, you know, really the underlying goal for all my books is that every reader feels good about themselves when they close the page. Nice goal. Yeah. We are speaking with Leslie and Newman. Her new books are The Fairest in the Land, I Can Be Me, The Bobka Sisters, all available, of course, at your local independent bookstore. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk to Leslie. We want to talk to Leslie about considering Matthew Shepard. Well, we're going to do that right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes aprobaron por poco el miércoles una legislación radical que elevaría el techo legal de la deuda del gobierno en 1.5 billones de dólares a cambio de fuertes restricciones de gastos, una victoria táctica para el presidente Kevin McCarthy, mientras desafía al presidente Joe Biden a negociar y evitar un incumplimiento federal catastrófico este verano. Biden ha amenazado con vetar el paquete republicano, que de todos modos casi no tiene posibilidades de ser aprobado por el Senado demócrata, y hasta ahora el presidente se ha negado a negociar el techo de la deuda que, según insiste la Casa Blanca, debe levantarse sin condiciones para garantizar que Estados Unidos pague sus deudas. Los republicanos tienen una mayoría de cinco escaños en la Cámara y se enfrentaron a varias ausencias esta semana, lo que dejó a McCarthy casi sin votos de sobra. Al final, el orador perdió cuatro votos republicanos republicanos negativos y todos los demócratas se opusieron. 
En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema habla con una sola voz en respuesta a las críticas recientes a las prácticas éticas de los jueces. No hay necesidad de arreglar lo que no está roto. La respuesta de los jueces sorprendió a algunos críticos y expertos en ética como sordos en un momento de mayor atención sobre los viajes de los jueces y las transacciones comerciales privadas. Eso ocurre en el contexto de una caída histórica en la aprobación pública según lo medido por las encuestas de opinión. Los seis conservadores y los tres liberales de la Corte parecen estar unidos en este principio particular. Sobre ética, establecerán sus propias reglas y policía entre ellos mismos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Good morning for WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Dozens of Western Massachusetts farms will receive local Farmers Award grants to help invest in new equipment. A total of $225,000 in grants will be divided to 97 local farms to help plant, harvest, and process products. Two-thirds of this year's grant recipients are located in Hampshire and Franklin Counties, including Carr's Cider House in Hadley and Breezy Knoll Farm in Leiden. The grant funds come from the Harold Grinspoon Charitable Foundation. The town of Amherst is dropping its COVID-19 vaccine mandate for school staff members. At the end of April, the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee voted unanimously to suspend the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for school staff, which was first put in place in 2021. The State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has left COVID protocols up to individual districts to decide on vaccine and health safety policies. The City of East Hampton is taking steps to stop students from vaping in the bathrooms by installing vape detectors. The sensors have been installed in both the high school and middle school bathrooms and locker rooms. Mayor Nicole LaChapelle told Western Mass News that these devices will hopefully address an uptick in teen vaping. The detectors work by sending a text message and email to school administrators when the vapor is detected and shares the exact location, time, and type of substance that was being used. After more than 70 years in the business, Ted's Boot Shop in Northampton is closing. Current owner Kathy Hudson is retiring and closing up shop at the end of May and is having a 50% off sale until all the product is gone. The store was founded in East Hampton in 1946 and moved to Northampton in 1964. For many years, the family-owned store specialized in people with unique foot care needs and orthotics. Hudson told the Gazette she had a buyer for the business, but the deal fell through, in part due to the high cost of rent. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are so pleased that Leslie Newman, prolific author, author of Heather Has Two Mommies, uh, who has two new books. Today is the publication date and a, another book that just came out. And she will have a, will you have a reading at the Senior Center coming up? I do. I am so happy to be the author of the month at the Senior Center, and I will be reading all these picture books and also a little bit of adult poetry. That's at the Northampton Senior Center. Yes. Coming up, do you, remember, do you know the date? Uh, I believe it's it is on a Tuesday. Tuesday in May, this month. Yes. Okay. Second to last Tuesday. Okay. I, we were talking before the break, and thank you so much for staying with us, Leslie. It wasn't on my agenda for today, but I'm so pleased you can. The, the, 
Bobka Sisters, the last book of yours that we were talking about before the break, is not uh, rhymed couplets, unlike the others. And uh, I'm wondering how that came about. And I also know, and we were talking about this during the break, that at the end of the Bobka Sisters, there is a recipe. So tell us about those two things. I've mixed and matched questions, but somehow I think you can handle it. I can handle it. So, you know, I started playing with the names um, Hester and Esther and Chester and Lester and Sylvester and Schwester. And it was just so much fun. And the word babka is just a lot of fun to say. But really, what rhymes with babka? Sort of maybe latka. But <laughs> so it just didn't seem like rhyming couplets would be the best approach. For babka. Right, right. <laughs> so I decided to use internal rhyme instead and write it in prose. When you're looking for rhymes, do you ever go to sources like Google and say, what rhymes with whatever the word is? Bobka. Yeah, um, there is uh, several rev- websites. One is called Rhyme Zone that I use sometimes, but I, I really try to dig it out of my head first. We are speaking with Leslie Newman, who has created some 80 books for readers of all ages. Her awards include two National Jewish Book Awards, the Massachusetts Book Award, the Sydney Taylor Body of Work Award, and the list goes on. I would like to turn to a very serious topic, and I think appropriate in particular today because the Pride March is back in Northampton this weekend, and that is your collection about Matthew Shepard and the new presentation about Matthew Shepard that will be occurring here in the Valley. Uh, By way of disclosure, I suspect I should say that I will be one of the uh, readers. Tell us about Matthew Shepard, if you would, why we should remember him today, a bit about your book and what will be presented in Greenfield. So for listeners who don't know, 25 years ago, Matthew Shepard was killed for being gay at the university Uh, In Laramie, he was a student at the University of Wyoming. He was kidnapped, beaten, tied to a fence, abandoned, found 18 hours later, uh, airlifted to a hospital, never regained consciousness, and died six days later with his family at his side. It became a huge watershed moment for the LGBTQ community. So um, there have been several artistic responses, including the Laramie Project by Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Group, and uh, my book, October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. And considering Matthew Shepard is a fusion oratorio, uh, which is a huge choral work. It's not even a concert as much as it's an experience. And I'm absolutely thrilled that uh, seven of my poems from October Morning are part of the libretto. Also, there are poems by William Blake, uh, Hafiz, W.S. Merwin, excerpts from Judy Shepard's memoir, uh, some uh, court transcripts, and some um, snippets from Matt's journals himself. Your book, your collection about Matthew Shepard, October Morning, which of course has that double entendre of mourning, uh, is deeply moving. And you write from different perspectives, one of which I just I, I just have never been able to get it out of my mind, don't really want to get it out of my mind, is you wrote the story of Matthew Shepard from the perspective of, among others, the fence. Tell us about point of view in your writing and how you decide what the point of view will be. 
So that whole book is an exploration because nobody really knows what happened during the short and probably endless 15 minutes that those three men were at that fence, so Matt and his two killers. And so as a poet, I was thought a lot about that and you know the question is if only there were some witnesses there and then I had my aha moment that there were witnesses right there was the fence there was the moon there were animals and then I really started thinking about the fence which became such an iconic symbol and I thought you know the fence was really an innocent bystander that was rooked into being a participant in this crime and I wondered what the fence had to say about that and that's where those poems came from. There were of course included you included the perspective of the sheriff, the investigating officers, the prosecutors, the defense lawyers, the defendants themselves, those who perpetrated the crime and Matthew Shepard. And did you learn something that you didn't know before by writing? Oh, I learned so much from writing that book. Um, you know, I did extensive... Well, actually, first I wrote the book without doing any research at all because I wanted to remember what was inside of me from that experience. But then I did a ton of research, including I read the trial transcript, which was 1,200 pages. I read Judy's book. I, um, you know, just did so... I went out to Wyoming twice. Um, and I just... What I learned... I mean, I learned so many things, but I learned so much from meeting and being in the company of Judy and Dennis Shepard, who are the kindest, most compassionate, compelling These people I've parents? ever met. These are Matthew's parents, yes, and the most generous. And, you know, two months after their son died, they began this foundation, the Matthew Shepard Foundation, whose mission is to erase hate. Um, because there was such an outpouring of support for them, they wanted to do something to give back in return in their son's name. The presentation in Greenfield? The presentation is Sunday, May 21st at 4 o'clock in Greenfield at the high school, considering Matthew Shepard a fusion oratorio. Leslie and Newman, it's such a pleasure to see you, to speak with you, to have you with us on our show. Congratulations on your new books. The Bobka Sisters, The Fairest in the Land, I Can Be Me, available at your local independent bookstore. You will do yourself a favor, listener. Yes, they're for kids, but you know what? Adults can read these also over and over and over. Leslie, congratulations. And Thanks thank so you much. for helping to change the world. Thanks so much. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to ensure. 
Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million. A bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show Jonathan Lossus, who is a evolutionary biologist, a professor. He taught for a long time at Harvard. He is now at Washington University, and he has a new book that I want you to know about. I didn't know I would want you to know about it, but it's such a, it's just too much fun and really interesting. The title is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Uh, Jonathan Lossus, uh, you did not expect to be writing a book about cats. You are a serious evolutionary biologist. You are the founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative uh, at Washington University. And the list of accolades and accomplishments goes on. And yet you ended up writing a really good book and a very funny book in many parts about cats. Why? Well, thank you for all those kind uh, kind statements. Uh, so I've always loved cats ever since I was a little boy, and we adopted a, a cat to give to my uh, my father for his birthday. Um, but as I became a scientist, I, it never occurred to me to pay attention to cats cat science. I just didn't think there was much going on, and so I've spent my career actually studying lizards, how they evolve, how they adapt, why they do what they do. But a few years ago, I suddenly realized that actually there are a lot of people, a lot of scientists who are studying domestic cats and learning all about them and using the same tools that I use to study lizards and my colleagues use to study elephants and lions and so on, things like DNA analysis and radio tracking and so on. And then I had this idea, why don't I teach a a class to college students called the science of cats? And the idea was that I would basically lure them in on cats and then teach them how we study nature just using cats as the vehicle. And the course went really great. It was lots of fun. The students really learned a lot. And then I said, well, maybe I should write a book because there are lots of people who are interested in cats, and there's all kinds of fascinating material that scientists are learning, and I thought it would be a great way to to tell people what we know about cats and how we know what we know, you know, what scientists do to learn about where, where they came from, why they do what they do, what the future may hold. What One thing I love about this book is the way in which you weave in a lot of information and anecdotes about other animals. I was particularly struck you were talking about the uh, evolution of cats. Well, let's stop there for a second. Cats evolved somewhat differently than other animals. Explain that to our listeners, if you would, first. Then I want to go back to some of the other aspects of what you discussed. But tell us about that first. Sure, how they were domesticated, how they became the domestic cat. Yes. 
well, it happened in, uh, in the area we call the Middle East. It's also called the Fertile Crescent. It's where civilization really first began, where people settled down. They stopped being hunter-gatherers, and they, they built villages and started, started growing, growing crops, becoming agriculturists. And as they did that, they, you know, farmers uh, will grow as much food as they can and then store it in the lean season. And so they would have uh, little huts full of crops, whatever they were growing. And, of course, the mice and the rats took advantage of that as this plentiful supply of food. And so the rodent population exploded. And then the native cat species that lived in that area, the African wildcat, some of them took advantage of that. So they started hanging around the village and eating the rodents. And people saw this as a good thing, and so maybe they were nice to the, the cats. They gave them some food. They gave them shelter in their, in their little huts and so on. And the cats that were the boldest, that were willing to enter the huts, would even get more food, and they would have more kittens. And so they would adapt. They would evolve to adapt to living around people. And people, in turn, in, encouraged that. They saw the benefit of having cats as, as rodent, uh, rodent control officers. And they, of course, also began to like cats just for being cats. And so that's how domestication occurred, first by cats just adapting to live around us, and then this, this dance between the people and the cats getting to know each other and becoming uh, more closely associated. Now, Jonathan Loftus, you say this. You say, a cat's a cat. And let me quote a couple sentences back to you. This may not seem extraordinary, but frequently it's not the case for many types of animals. Some extinct species were often quite different from their modern modern relatives. Consider, for example, the giant ground sloth. It was nothing like the diminutive, diminutive tree hangers we know today. Lizards that looked like sea dragons grew to 50 feet in length and cruised the world seas during the age of dinosaurs. And some ancient crocodiles lived on land and had hooves. <laughs> really? In contrast, cats seem to have found a winning recipe and have stuck with it. What do you mean by that? Well, 30 million years ago, the first cat evolved, and the fossils, the fossils of it tell us, if you saw one today, you'd say, that's a cat. It doesn't look very different from cats today. Its legs may have been a little bit shorter. And for the most part, that's true. All the cats that have ever lived, the feline species, you would clearly recognize as a cat. And yes, they're bigger and smaller. Maybe their legs are longer or shorter. Of course, the saber-toothed cats had long dagger-like teeth, but they were all cats, and they really weren't very different from each other. So it's as if they, they found a winning formula and basically have stuck with it. Well, you do reference in your book, again, the title is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, the author, Jonathan Lossus. Uh, you do re- reference the old saw that um, if your cat were the size of your dog, it would eat you. Is that true? Well, you know, we, um, we don't know because they're not. And, and <laughs> I would, you know, if, uh, if you know, lions and tigers can be very dangerous, uh, domestic cats are generally quite affectionate and friendly. So my guess is that big cat, big domestic cats, would just be as friendly as smaller ones. There are some breeds of cats that are getting a little bit larger, nothing like you know, the size of a lion or tiger, and they're still very friendly cats. I will say one thing, though. Uh, it, there is a belief out there that if a person dies in their house and the body is not discovered, that a cat will eat the body. It turns out there is a little bit of research on this, and actually dogs do that much more often than cats. So for whatever that tells you, maybe cats are, are pretty good to us. I would like to know uh, more about how cats evolved into different uh, 
different lines. That's not quite the right word, but di- different uh, breeds. D- different sp- not species, but they are different breeds. Uh, different breeds. That's the word. Thank you. Uh, tell us, if you would, please, about that, because you also make the point here that most cats are and not to mix metaphor, but most cats are mutts. Yes. So, uh, by contrast. Dogs in the United States, about half of the dogs that people own are pedigree. They are members of a breed. And those that aren't are usually a mix between several breeds. They have pedigree dogs as their ancestors. That's not true for cats. Only about 15% of cats that people have as pets are a member of a breed. Uh, Now, the way a breed gets started is people taking some cats and selecting the ones that have the traits that they want. And that might be how curly their hair is or what color they are or maybe some more exotic traits like how long their legs are. And if you keep uh, selecting the kittens that have the traits you want and breeding them with each other, after a while you, very, you have a, a group of cats that is very predictable in what they will look like or what their behavior is if you select on their behavior. And that is how breeds of anything are, are developed. Um, in recent years, there has been a trend uh, to select, occasionally mutations come along. You may be familiar with the hairless cat, the sphinx, which actually has a very fine short hair. Uh, that was just a mutation that popped up in a cat, and for whatever reason, people liked it. And yeah, so we'll stop it. there for a second. Why did people yeah. like it? Well, <laughs> now that is, you know, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> some of these breeds are kind of bizarre looking in a way. Uh, but people like novelty. People like uh, things that, that are different. And so some people try to, to propagate those breeds. And, you know, if, the, if that trait doesn't hurt the cat, there's really no harm in it. Uh, some of the traits, however, are, have health problems. This is true of both cats and dogs. And breeds with those traits really should not be developed and they should be phased out. But, you know, a cat with curly hair, there's no harm to the cat with that. And some people find that interesting. In a more positive way, some cats have been bred for behaviors, basically to be very affectionate or very, you know, lap cats, if you will. And so that's uh, good to develop cats for people who, uh, like my father, when he got old, we got him a cat that was known to be very affectionate and not too rambunctious. And so behavioral traits of breeds can be very important. So, uh, Jonathan Lossus, I'd like to ask you about a story that appeared in our local newspaper yesterday, and it was a complaint, that a proposed law to stop the declawing of domestic ah, cats. Yes. What, what's your perspective on that? That law should be passed everywhere. Uh, declawing is horrible. Uh, it, you might think that declawing is like clipping your fingernails or maybe just a little bit more, but that's not the case. Basically, what is, it, it's amputation. It's as if you took a garden shear and, and cut the middle of your last digit of your finger, the last bone in your finger. So it is mutilation of the animals. It can cause lasting pain and damage. And it's just not a defensible practice. You know, if you don't want your cat scratching, train your cat. And in fact, uh, cats are very trainable. People don't realize this, but you can train cats to do all kinds of things. They are very food motivated, and so you can train a cat not to scratch the furniture or to do many other things. You can even train a cat to use your toilet and so you don't need kitty litter. So uh, there's, there's no reason that decline should occur in, in modern times. It's whoa, 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 practice. whoa. I don't mean to trivialize. It's such an important... Declining is so horrible, but you can train your cat 
to use the toilet? Yeah, let's stop it's, on that for a minute. <laughs> well, it's true. If you, there, are, there, are, uh, inter, uh, there are videos on the Internet, and you can see it's a, you basically put the kitty litter in the, in the toilet, not in the water but above it, and you train them to use the kitty litter there, and then you remove the kitty litter, and they just keep on doing it. Where were you when my children were toddlers, for crying out loud? <laughs> so, Jonathan Lawson, tell us a bit more, if you would, in the same vein, kind of, about cats being uh, teachable, trainable, to go fetch. That sounds uh, like a different, different species, but... Well, they- it's even more than that. This is, I had this experience myself. We, we got a new kitten a few years ago, and we bought a lot of toys to play with the kitten, and the kitten started bringing the toys to me. He would come from across the room carrying the toy in his mouth. He would drop it at my feet and look up to me, I mean, clearly saying, playtime. And then when I would throw the, the toy across the room, he would madly dash, gut it, and bring it back to me. So I didn't even train him. He did that on his own. He, he fetched toys. Um, I thought this was extraordinary. I, I'd never heard of such a thing. I thought he was the greatest cat in the world. Well, he is the greatest cat in the world. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had all these visions of taking him, putting him on America's Got Talent and things like that. But then I looked, I looked it up, and it turns out, when people survey people who, who live with cats, about 20% of the people say their cats do this. So this is a trait that at least some cats have, that they will bring you toys to play with, and if you toss them, they will fetch them and, and bring them back. We have been speaking with Jonathan Lossus. His new book is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa. It's a rich book. There's lots more to talk about. I wish we had more time, but we have to run. Jonathan Lossus, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for this book available at your local independent bookstore, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa. It's a great read. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for your book. Well, thank you, Bill. This has been a real pleasure. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org, or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.
President Biden will send active duty U.S. troops to the southern border before Title 42 is lifted next Thursday. A source says troops will provide logistical support like narcotics detection and data entry, but will not interact with migrants or anyone in the custody of the Department of Homeland Security. We have breaking news from court in Minneapolis. The last of four former police officers facing judgment in George Floyd's death has been found guilty of manslaughter. WCCO-TV's Steve Simpson reports. Hutau's bench trial on second-degree manslaughter wrapped up at the end of January, and this morning, Hennepin County Judge Peter Cahill released his verdict. Tau opted to forego a jury trial, while his co-defendants, Thomas Lane and J. Alexander King, pled guilty to similar state charges and were sentenced to between 36 and 42 months in prison. Tau will be sentenced on August 7th. Tau held back bystanders as Derek Chauvin. Uh, make that as Floyd suffocated with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck. A devastating fine for police investigating the disappearance of two teenaged girls. Authorities searching a rural Oklahoma property for two missing teenagers discovered the bodies of seven people, including the suspected remains of the teens and a convicted sex offender who was sought along with them. Eddie Rice is the sheriff in Henrietta, Oklahoma, about 90 miles east of Oklahoma City. Our hearts go out to the families and friends, schoolmates, and everyone else, and it's just a tragedy in Okmulgee County. The two girls, a 14-year-old and 16-year-old, had been reported missing by their families. Jim Crisula, CBS News. In the Middle East. The Israeli military says Palestinian militants in Gaza have fired a barrage of rockets after the death of a high-profile Palestinian prisoner in Israeli custody. Qatar Adnan had been on a hunger strike for three months. Here in the U.S. again, TV and movie writers have walked off their jobs. The Hollywood Reporter's Alex Weprin. The first place that you would see the effects are actually on late-night television. The Tonight Show and NBC, The Late Show on CBS. They had new episodes last night, and they were supposed to have new episodes tonight. They're off the air until further notice. Writers Guild members are demanding better pay for streaming shows and better working conditions. Studio producers say their budgets are already maxed out. The last writer's strike 15 years ago lasted for more than three months. Tony nominations announced on CBS Mornings last hour. Some like it hot. Waltz is away with 13 nods. That's the most of any Broadway production this season. The Dow is down 169 points. This is CBS News. Need to hire quality candidates fast? You need Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. The Super Bowl was a bigger hit than we thought. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. Kansas City's win over Philadelphia was watched. 
Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Dozens of Western Massachusetts farms will receive local farmers award grants to help invest in new equipment. A total of $225,000 in grants will be divided to 97 local farms to help plant, harvest, and process products. Two-thirds of this year's grant recipients are located in Hampshire and Franklin counties, including Carr's Cider House in Hadley and Breezy Knoll Farm in Leiden. The grant funds come from the Harold Grinspoon Charitable Foundation. The Town of Amherst is dropping its COVID-19 vaccine mandate for school staff members. At the end of April, the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee voted unanimously to suspend the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for school staff, which was first put in place in 2021. The State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has left COVID protocols up to individual districts to decide on vaccine and health safety policies. The City of East Hampton is taking steps to stop students from vaping in the bathrooms by installing vape detectors. The sensors have been installed in both the high school and middle school bathrooms and locker rooms. Mayor Nicole LaChapelle told Western Mass News that these devices will hopefully address an uptick in teen vaping. The detectors work by sending a text message and email to school administrators when the vapor is detected and shares the exact location, time, and type of substance that was being used. After more than 70 years in the business, Ted's Boot Shop in Northampton is closing. Current owner Kathy Hudson is retiring and closing up shop at the end of May and is having a 50% off sale until all the product is gone. The store was founded in East Hampton in 1946 and moved to Northampton in 1964. For many years, the family-owned store specialized in people with unique foot care needs and orthotics. Hudson told the Gazette she had a buyer for the business, but the deal fell through, in part due to the high cost of rent. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And with us is our uh, monthly visit. Uh, we're so grateful for We're so lucky to have him, Senator Paul Mark, representing the 57 cities and towns of the, I hope I get it right, Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire District. Did I get the order right, Paul? You did. Yep, that is beautiful. And it changed this, this year, so have it 100% correct. <laughs> All right. I get an A for this morning. So, uh, you know where I wanted to uh, start is you are the chair of the Revolution 250th Commission. Could you tell us about it and uh, how it's proceeding, what the plans seem to be? Yeah. So as, as part of being chair of the Joint Committee on Tourism, Arts, and Cultural Development, I'm also chair of this commission. And it's pretty interesting because the beginning of the revolution is going to be April 19th. Uh, 2025, the 250th anniversary of the first shots, and obviously it happened in Massachusetts. And so there's actually like a national component and a state component of this that in 2025 into 2026, I would hope that the showcase is going to be of Massachusetts. And then as 2026 like unfolds and heads towards July 4th, the 250th of, of the country's independence, Pennsylvania will kind of take over. But so we, we really want to showcase what's going on. And, and uh, I'm taking over this commission along with local representative Mindy Dom, who's the house chair of the same committee. And it's exciting because there's a lot happening. And I think it kind of got stalled out because of COVID. But the lieutenant governor's excited about this. The local reps and senators in, in, in the eastern part of the state are pretty excited. And we're trying to make sure that we get all the Western Mass connections involved in this as well. And even the British consulate. I visited the British consulate and, and talked to them about their thoughts on the matter. <laughs> you didn't shoot anybody, did you? <laughs> to their credit, they have... <laughs> They have a painting in their consulate 
of the USS Constitution sinking uh, whatever ship it was uh, that earned it the nickname uh, Old Ironsides back in the War of 1812. So, you know, they've moved past. <laughs> so when, when you chair something like a 250th commission celebrating 250 years since a revolution began, is it all about the past, or does the commission also look at the future? Yeah, or the present, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a great point, and also what has happened in the 250 years between the initial events and where we are today. And when you think about where the first shots happened, it was on a bridge in, in Lexington. So I, I love that idea of kind of bridging the past with the future and, and thinking about where we're going, and also thinking about when you look at that event, we might know, yeah, they met at the bridge, and the shots were fired, and this, that, and the other thing, and, and, and Paul Revere, and, and Sam Adams, and, and all of that. But also, I, I learned this year, the Stockbridge tribe of Indians out, out of uh, western Massachusetts, out of the Berkshires, they were involved. That Native American tribe was involved in Revolutionary War battles. And then the western Massachusetts connection, you have that Knox Trail, you have people bringing those cannons down from Fort Ticonderoga, crossing the state of Massachusetts, and making sure that uh, Dorchester was fortified, which led to the British leaving. So making sure that we're including maybe voices and, and faces that were forgotten, in the history books over the over the past 250 years, and then also making sure that, yeah, what are, what are we showcasing in, in Massachusetts? And when, when we talked with the lieutenant governor, she said Salem was a tourist-based economy, so she's really excited about um, making sure that we are spotlighting how awesome Massachusetts is, how, how much of a leader we've been, and just giving people reasons to come here over the next couple of years and, and learn more about what happened and where we're going as well, and maybe they'll stay. <laughs> Well, as uh, you're you're on a committee that promotes tourism, is part of the purpose is to be able to attract people to Massachusetts to celebrate the 250th year? Yeah, we want people to celebrate, and it can go, again, even as far as I've talked with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and they do the big Fourth of July thing every year, the big concert uh, on that Esplanade in Boston. And I think they've seen kind of a lull in participation in the last couple of years, which I think a lot of people saw a lull in participation because of COVID. And talking about how do we make the concert in the next couple of years, like, bigger than it's ever been. And when they go back to the bicentennial in 1976, you know, the president at the time, president of the United States, came and attended the ceremonies. And so if we... Hopefully it'll be a, uh, <laughs> either the current president or someone even better. Um, but hopefully the president of the United States in, in 2025 or 2026 is going to come to come to Massachusetts. And everything we do to make people around this country and around the world understand both why Massachusetts is a leader, what we have to offer in natural beauty, and then if you come here, like why do people stay here? And and it's 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 not about the weather. It's it's about being leaders in thought, being leaders in education, that leads to workforce, but it also leads to a society that accepts people. And in the world today, um, I think spotlighting what we have to offer can only benefit us, for sure. I'd like to come back to this economic development aspect of the celebration. Mm -hmm. But before we go there, I'd like to also ask you about how diversity will be approached by your commission, part of the part of your legislative charge. And in particular, I'd like to ask about the sentence in the Declaration of Independence, the ac accusation among this list of accusations, and it's long, against the King of England. And, it's, and the last one is this. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us 
and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Uh, it's a part of the Declaration of Independence that always brings me up short when I read it every July 4th. Uh, a lot of wonderful statements in the Declaration of Independence, not that one. And I'm wondering whether there's going to be some uh, effort to really come to grips with some aspects of revolutionary the, the revolutionary part of our history that is really, really objectionable. Yeah, that's where you have you have some great opportunities. Because I said this, this Stockbridge Muncie band of, of Native Americans uh, that were located out in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. They they were involved. They 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 took sides with the colonists, with the locals, and they fought against the British for whatever reason. So it's kind of not the words not ironic. It, it's an oxymoron that uh, while this document that has so many high-minded ideals, also mentions this. At the same time, the battles that were already taking place in Massachusetts, because if you look at the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence, the war had already ended in Massachusetts. We had already won as of March 17, 1776. British left and have never since returned. Uh, and then the Declaration of Independence is going to be adopted, obviously, in July later that year. And so for Thomas Jefferson or whoever to not know that, right here in Massachusetts, we were working in partnership with local in indigenous peoples to uh, achieve this victory is, is is disappointing. And then also, when you go back to the revolution, probably the, the first tipping point, the first flashpoint is the Boston Massacre. And one of the first people killed in the Boston Massacre is Crispus Attucks, who's, who's a black gentleman. And so you have this important part of history that We'll, we'll use the word whitewash that gets whitewashed out of history, and it is so important that we make sure. You no, know, there was a lot of different, diverse people here, and they were all involved uh, in many ways. And in spotlighting that, I think is important. And of course, the contributions of women as well, because women were involved in every single step of of, of the revolution in so many different ways, is extremely important. So, uh, Senator Paul Mark, who else is on the two fiftieth commission? Well, locally, I said you got me and, and, and Chair Mindy Dom. You have the senator out of Lexington uh, in Concord, obviously important. You have the senator out of Lowell, who had been the chair of tourism last session. And uh, you have what we're looking for is to get money to a person that will be the actual point person, preferably uh, out of a state agency. It could be the Massachusetts Office of Tourism and, and Travel. Uh, but we need, because time is getting short because we have about two years to get this up and running beyond the commission exploring you know what's the best what, what one of the subcommittees is diversity and inclusion one of the subcommittees is finance but bringing that all together uh, a legislator isn't going to be the person that really executes so getting that position in place which is something in, that's that's happening in in the state budget as well making sure that the funding is there that the proper amount of funding is there, and then that we're marketing and approaching this in the way that is going to be the most successful and takes advantage of a pretty rare opportunity to be, again, a showcase to the, to the country and to the world that I think can have permanent impact. Will there be any uh, public hearings or any invitations for people yeah. who are not part of government to participate in the planning Oh yeah, there's 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 public happening uh, public hearings happening all the time. Uh, so, how do we make people know about that? I think if someone out there that is listening has an interest in this, I would recommend you either ma email me at paul.mark at ma senate.gov or email mindy 
dom at mahouse.gov and we can get you connected and put you to the right place for sure. But there are there are public hearings happening, and if you go to mahlegislature.gov, you can see a full schedule of all committee and all commission hearings, and, and you can definitely find this too. Senator, I'd be interested to know a little bit more about how the commission and the legislature intends to use this opportunity not only to teach people but as an economic driver. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so so an economic driver, what we find is that tourism is now the third biggest uh, sector of the economy in Massachusetts, and that every dollar that we invest in some kind of a marketing and some kind of a programming, uh, they, they, they find it pays about seven, seven times uh, it pays back. So if we invest in come see what is happening in Massachusetts, people are going to come here, people are going to spend money, there's going to be the need for economic activity first driving the visits that are going to happen, but then also... Whenever someone comes to Massachusetts, and I, I, I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive, if you come to Massachusetts and you see things that you like, or you see maybe cultural elements that you like that are different from places that you live or, or, or have lived, and again, especially in a moment like today where there are shifts in populations for many reasons, and I think based on what we're seeing happening around the country, I know I personally, if I was, if I was living and working in Austin, Texas, I would probably want to move because I don't know how comfortable I would feel staying there. And so if you have the opportunity to hear more about Massachusetts, come here, see, spend some money, spend some time, you might want to then permanently stay. So I think there's going to be a flurry of intermittent, short and, and medium-term economic activity that can come from this commission and, and from this, uh, this actual historic anniversary. But there's also always that opportunity. And boy, do we need it to make permanent, long-term impact. Senator, I think, in fairness to the people of Austin, you might feel comfortable <laughs> there, not in the legislature, but in the city. The rest of, <laughs> rest of Texas, well, not so much. <laughs> we are talking with Senator Paul Mark, representing the Berkshire Hamden Franklin and Hampshire, huge district for a Massachusetts senator to represent. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about, you hear that drip, drip, drip? That's the conversation about the budget that doesn't stop this time of year. We're going to talk about the budget with Senator Mark right after this. Well, Papa, go to bed now. It's getting late. Nothing we can say is going to change anything now. I believe in the morning from St. Mary's Gate. We wouldn't change this thing even if we could somehow Cause the darkness of this house has got the best of us There's a darkness in this town that's You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do... 
people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. The lights come up, the music plays, there you are. Center stage in a Broadway musical. You're at summer camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. There are theme weeks like Broadway, flag football, studio arts, STEM challenges, and science exploration. There's basketball week, wizarding week, dance camp, Bement summer camp, themed weeks all summer. Or good old fashioned day camp weeks with no theme at all, just swimming, games, and arts and crafts. Plus, outdoor adventure camps with our partner Adventure East, in case you like paddling canoes or climbing rocks. Summer camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. It's all on the Bement website. Bement is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. We learn from each other in the classroom, cheer for each other on the field, and celebrate each other on the stage. And we don't stop in the summer. Sign up for summer camp at bement.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We are here with Senator Paul Mark. And, uh, Senator, you were in the House for, what, 11, 12 years? And uh, budgets are not new to you. You went through this process that we are currently involved in where uh, the governor submits a proposal and then it goes through the House, the House works it uh, through from its perspective and then gives it to the Senate, and then we try to reconcile. How is it different being a senator than it was being a representative? It is so frustrating to be the chamber that goes third. <laughs> so you watch <laughs> the governor, and, and, you, and you see what she did, and, and you know it, she's new, so of course she had to do it, but it took six weeks longer than, than normal. And then you watch the House, and I... I Senator Ben Downing, former Senator Ben Downing, used to say to me, oh, yeah, we look through the House and we see what they screwed up, and then the, the Senate does it in May. And I, I, I always thought he was a jerk, and now we, I, I realize he was right. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and I love Ben Downing. I just went on that. But he was a jerk. But, no, he was being teasing, but he was, he was, uh, was kind of correct. It is, it, is, it is interesting to watch and have people advocate to you and you almost feel powerless because you're waiting for your turn. And so people will say, well, could you, co- could you co-sponsor this amendment? I'm like, sorry, I'm not in the House, so I can't. But, you know, if, if in the Senate we see the same problem, uh, then I'll, I'll certainly be happy to, to help tackle that and, and, and work on your behalf, that kind of thing. And so now we watched through the governor, we watched through this, the, the House, and what uh, an area I liked was the governor came out with just $7.5 million for rural aid, and then the House came up with $10 million for rural aid. So, like, it's heading in the right direction. And, boy, if in the Senate we could even get a couple more million in there, I think that would be really wonderful. But that's, like, one of those areas where I hear about rural school aid so much and from so many school districts, and then you watch this process where it, it, it's just, like, this frustration. I'm, I'm, I, I like to act. I like to get down to business. And <laughs> so you have to wait till to be third to take your turn. It, it, it gets a little uh, tiresome. <laughs> well, I, I know you've got so much to look at, but can can you talk about what a few of your priorities are for this budget season, for this budget? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm carrying a couple of statewide line items for mediation training and for some oral health priorities. I'm actually the co-chair of the Oral Health Caucus, and so we want to make sure that people have access to dental services the same way they would have access to medical, and, and, and we find that dental dental care can you know be a really important factor in future good health, in future health uh, of, of your entire body. It's important from a young age. And then locally, you know, there's there's focus on rail, there's focus on education, there's focus on road funding, there's focus on a lot of um, people sometimes don't like to use the word earmarks, but I love the word earmarks because earmarks mean this is me as a legislator making a priority known for my district. You know, we, we come up with a lot of funding to go to grant programs and most governors, I think, do a pretty good job working in collaboration with the legislature and the cities and towns. But, boy, when you have the opportunity as a legislator on the ground to hear from people locally, it can end up with some fabulous results. And so just because we happen to buzz, we love Ashfield, um, Rep. Blay got an earmark for double-edged theater in the budget. And so that, that comes off my plate. That's a place where I look at what the House did and I go, yes, that is done. Now I can move my focus elsewhere. And so there's this Hilltown Youth Recovery Theater that works in the hills to try to uh, help kids, uh, you know, that maybe are facing recovery or, or in families where there's a recovery situation and, and, and keep kids out of that situation. So trying to get them a little money we've done in the past is, is something I want to look at. The town of Coleraine, they're going through a lot of stuff right now with that Barnhart closing down in, in, their, in their sewer district. And so trying to get them some funding is, is something just locally in, in uh, Hampshire and Franklin counties that we're looking at. Yes, indeed. So if there's a listener right now who really is passionate about a particular thing, that they think the legislature should be tackling. Uh, can they get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. The, the best way to get in touch with me personally is through that email. I'll give it again. It's just my name. It's paul.mark at masenate.gov. And you can Google me to find it if you, if you forget. And we're all available on the malegislature.gov website. And then we have these, uh, we have office hours all over the place. So uh, I know next week we're going to have hours in Buckland. We have hours in Williamsburg. And so it's a good opportunity to come in. And if there's something that has to do with budgeting, so whether you think a program was funded properly, you think a program was not funded properly, you think there's a tax component you want to talk about. Uh, Even sometimes there's language. Maybe the governor proposed some language that's still alive and you want to make sure it doesn't happen that way because you can uh, approve policy through the budget process as well. This is the time. Let us know because the budget, by the time I talk with you guys again uh, in June, we'll have done our portion. And so then we'll be looking at at that reconciliation that you try to get the House and the Senate versions uh, combined into one document and and back to the governor's desk for her, hopefully her approval. And how how is that working? I guess you haven't really gotten there yet uh, because you're fairly new to the Senate now. Just a couple months ago you were, oh, I guess it's like five months ago that you were sworn in, but, but that whole process of reconciliation between the two chambers, um, you know that process as a former representative, but as a senator, do you expect those old relationships that you forged by uh, serving shoulder-to-shoulder with other uh, representatives, do you think that's going to come in handy? Yeah, I, I, I think it is, and it's been it's been an interesting experience making the transition because there are subtle, it's the same job, but there are some subtle nuanced differences that can have a pretty big impact on, on how you view the legislative process. And so, yeah, having that relationship with the reps, I think is, is, is a, a benefit to me and to the region. And even something as simple as when I, when I talk about like the office hours that we do, 
we do the roving office hours every every month, but then I also hit at least two little towns um, in in a like an open forum, and so I'm going to do one in Tallinn, the town of Tallinn, in a couple of weeks, and and the reps have come with me to every one. I think I've done 13 of them, and every one of them, my my local rep has been there with me, and and the one in Tallinn's a Republican, <laughs> so you know what I mean. Mm. Like having that partnership, I think, is an important an important uh, attribute to have, uh, and I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. For my district, anyway, we haven't had a rep go to the Senate since 1961, and so I am trying to take full advantage of the knowledge of, of now both sides of, 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 the, of the building. Yeah, uh, it is invaluable that you have that, that experience. And I know I, every time we speak, I, I speak about this, I know as somebody who is involved in my local town government, we always loved it when our senator and you as our representative mm-hmm. and Senator Adam Hines was great about it. Senator Ben Dowling was great about it before him. Um, comes to our town meeting, comes to certain things. But I, I do understand it's just harder now, given how many jurisdictions you have. You can't be everywhere at once. And if you were everywhere at once, you wouldn't be doing your job. It must be frustrating right. for you. That's that's probably the most difficult part, is, is, is being everywhere. And I, I think I had a pretty good reputation in the House for being everywhere. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to do that. And, and Senator Downing, to his credit, former Senator Downing said what he's hearing is people say, wow, you're everywhere, which is which feels awesome. Um, but, yeah, there's 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 32 towns that are still new to me. And so just trying to make those rounds, it gets very uh, it gets very difficult. And then I constantly feel like, am I doing enough? And uh, hopefully I am because I'm, I'm really putting a lot of effort into it. So hopefully people are feeling uh, my presence. Well, my last question, um, Senator, is has not very little, I hope, to do with Massachusetts. We are watching in other legislature, legislatures in, um, in Montana last week, in Tennessee the week before that, where there's this attempt by local chamber leaders to silence and even expel duly elected members with whom they disagree on policy and ideology. How do you, as a legislator, regard that when you see that happening? How serious a threat is it to our democracy? It's an extremely serious threat. It, it, it goes back to the, the fundamental foundation. So in the state constitution of Massachusetts, legislators cannot be arrested. They can't be held by uh, the law enforcement authorities on their way to and from a vote. And people think, oh, that's kind of goofy. Why not? Because back in the 1700s, the king might have sent out the sheriff to stop you from going to a vote because you're going to disagree with the king. And so to see that now we've advanced to a place 250 years later where we kind of take that for granted and laugh at it, but then see in real life, oh, that's why that stuff exists, because political speech, especially in a legislative forum where you are representing somewhere between, in Massachusetts anyway, 40 and 170,000 people, you know, I'm there as their voice. I'm not there to talk for myself. And so anything that is being done by the leaders of one of these chambers or by a governor to silence that voice of the people is, is, is fundamentally a threat to the, the point of electing people to these offices. I, I, it, as basically as this, when I'm in the chamber you refer to me as the gentleman from the Berkshires or whatever it might be. You, we never refer to each other by our names because it is supposed to be put out there that we are not personally debating, personally arguing. 
we are there to speak on behalf of the people that we serve. And so, yeah, it's, it's a real problem. Well, that is an important place to leave it, and I think we will. We're so grateful for our monthly opportunity to talk with you, Senator Paul Mark, and um, good luck uh, between now and the time the budget is finally passed. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'll see you guys next month. Thank you, Senator. Thanks, Senator. We will be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Happy Tuesday for WHMP News. I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. The city of East Hampton is taking steps to stop students from vaping in the bathrooms. East Hampton High School and Middle School now have vape detectors. The sensors have been installed in both schools. Mayor Nicole LaChapelle tells Western Mass News that vape detectors have recently been installed in the high school bathrooms and locker rooms, as well as in all 8th grade bathrooms at the middle school due to the uptick in vape use by teens. The detectors work by sending a text message and email to school administrators when the device is triggered. The detectors then provide administrators with the exact location, time, and type of substance that is being used. Ted's Boot Shop in Northampton is closing. Current owner Kathy Hudson is retiring and closing up shop at the end of May, the latest business to cease operations in the city. The store was founded in East Hampton in 1946 and moved to Northampton in 1964. Hudson tells the Gazette she had a buyer for the business, but the deal fell through in part due to the high cost of rent. A Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote on the $97.5 million elementary school project will be decided at tonight's town election in Amherst. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. And an American bald eagle has returned to a transmission tower at 22 News in Chicopee. After a long winter hiatus, the eagle was seen perched on the tower Monday afternoon. As of 2018, 26 territorial pairs of bald eagles were identified in Massachusetts. Before 2012, bald eagles were listed as endangered in the state. For WHMP News, I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. Mostly cloudy today, although a few breaks of blue sky are possible. Plan on scattered showers both in the morning and in the afternoon, a high of 54 to 58. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures upper 40s, overnight lows of 36 to 42. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, scattered showers, a high in the mid-50s, low to mid-50s Thursday, chance of a shower. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep. Because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic. Not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic. The lesser-known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't. But they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years. At least a thousand. And they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow Bay Staters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, Therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a Therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College in the sleepy part of town. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. 
No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are... uh Extremely gratified on Talk to Talk to uh, once again have the opportunity to uh, chat with Attorney Joe Bernard. Uh, Joe Bernard represented the defendant uh, whose case uh, landed before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And as a result of his effort and that of other attorneys and his client, um, the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that 27,000 people convicted of OUI are entitled to uh, make a motion for a new trial. Operating under the influence, sometimes known as driving under the influence. They're driving you. while intoxicated. Right. And that's uh, what OUI is when I refer to it as OUI. That they're entitled to make a motion and request a new trial because of the deficiencies in the calibration of the breath uh, testing machine, which indicated that they were operating under the influence when, in fact, they may not have been so... Joe Bernard, you uh, where we left off last week, and thank you again for for being here. We could you talk about the process that these twenty seven thousand people, if they choose to, have to go through in order to get a new look at their case? Sure. So it's a little it's a little bit messy, but there is a process. the The difference between our case and the Dukin lab situation is the fact that there are two methodologies of proving somebody was drunk driving. Can we time out for a minute, Bill, the Dukin lab case? Yeah, let's back up once just for a moment. Uh, first of all, I, I mentioned OUI and uh, DWI. It's no longer a charge of driving while intoxicated. The charge is operating under the influence. And there's a second charge in Massachusetts as well, operating a motor vehicle while your blood alcohol reading is over a designated amount. You don't actually personally have to be under the influence. You have to have a blood alcohol, what we call the breath test, of over 0.08. Whether you're under the influence or not, that is a separate crime with the same penalties as driving under the influence. So... As for the Dukin lab case, what happened in Massachusetts is that there was a uh, case brought because two uh, lab testers in Massachusetts, Sonia Farrakh and Dukin in the eastern part of the state, falsified lab results for persons charged with drug crimes. And as a result of lengthy litigation, significantly uh, driven by attorney Luke Ryan of Northampton, the Supreme Judicial Court, after years of litigation, declared, I think, 30,000-plus convictions to be vacated. And there was a process that 
was then initiated so that people could have their cases, well, have the convictions not only uh, vacated, but to have their records expunged, and that process was in place. In this case, as of now, there are 27,000, 27,000 cases of driving under the influence where the Supreme Judicial Court has ruled those cases may well not be valid. The convictions may well be wrong, but there is not yet a process in place that's clear, I don't think, but we can hear more about this from yeah, Joe Bernard. That, that's when we inter- inter- interrupted you, um, uh, Joe Bernard. So you were, you were distinguishing your cases, those 27,000, from the state lab cases. Sure, sure. So the egregious misconduct in, in, in my case is, is almost worse than it was in Dukin because we had two bad actors. In our case, we had an entire lab with the dysfunction and, and, and the deceit. But here's the big difference, as, as you pointed out. The fact of the matter is there's this alternative way of proving, guilty by black box, right? The per se aspect of, of operating under the influence. If you're over 0.08 or above, bang, and it's a valid test, then, then you can be found guilty. But there is another methodology of proving that, and that's under the influence, with an opinion of an officer, with videos, et cetera, et cetera. And there lies the dilemma. There lies the dilemma that the SJC says, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to dismiss all of these, you know, with a stroke of a pen as we did with Duke and Farrakh, because this is alternative theory. And there is the problem. A different crime. I mean, there's a different statute. They get to the same thing, but they do it differently. One is a per se crime, 0.08 and above, you're guilty of driving 0.08 and above. Driving under the influence uh, does not depend on the breathalyzer test for a conviction. And I just want to remind people, SJC means Supreme Judicial Court are the highest case in the highest court in Massachusetts. Well, and, and the issue was addressed, and I, I will just respectfully say that that the breath test does bleed over into the other. It does. And the cases teach us that even if you're not per se, they're going to be able to use that breath test even in the under the influence theory. So it does matter. And, and I, we tried to explain this to the Supreme Judicial Court. And unfortunately, we, we got a huge victory, but we didn't get the, the, the blanket dismissals that we were hoping for. And now it puts people in a little bit of a, a jeopardy. Those who are disenfranchised, those who, who might not have connection or didn't get our notices, we sent out these 27,000 notices. But look at, I mean, how old it is. Our people are at the same address. We also pressed and we were able to have the judge order the the, um, the Board of Bar Overseers to identify the lawyers representing these people. And we pushed and we were able to get notification to the lawyers in an effort to try to have, you know, those people who might not have been contacted, maybe the lawyers will contact them. But it's not perfect. And these notices went out two years ago, and now the SJC has confirmed all our work, and I'm pushing for re-notification, and whether or not that happens is is up in the air. But still... What about the people who don't know about this? And there's there's 27,000. They don't find out, and it's going to be impacting their lives. Well, I, I'm thinking about, Attorney Joe Bernard, what about those people who can't afford to hire a lawyer to request a new trial who have no idea how to go through that process? Well, the two, right, two different things. So we, do, we, we did the best we could. The Committee for Public Counsel Services has a hotline, and those individuals— 
will have free representation. But, but, but I think it really gets to the point of how about the people who don't even know? And in a year or so, they're going to be applying for a job, a bank loan, or, or, or maybe they get arrested again. And all of a sudden, this comes up into their lives and really, really damages them. Then what? What about the time in, that's re- you're allowed a certain amount of time to ask for a new trial under the rules? Is this going to be time barred if people don't know about it? Actually, no. Rule 30 doesn't have a particular time commitment. So the answer would be no. That's the good news. The bad news is what does the poor person do when they don't get a job and they won't know why they didn't get the job, but it's because of this pops up on their record. This, so th- these, these issues really need to be addressed. And I'm, I'm working with, with other lawyers. There's, there's some thought process about what we can do down the road to, to maybe uh, uh, have blanket dismissals or give these people some refuge. Attorney Joe Bernard just mentioned Rule 30. We should note for our listeners, that's Rule 30 of the Massachusetts Rules of Criminal Procedure, which governs motions for a new trial. That, yeah, that's correct. And it doesn't have any particular statute of limitations. So, so those who might be hearing this, there are no particular uh, uh, time bars. But the real problem is those who don't know. The, the, the insidious aspect of this sits there, you know, uh, you know, just simmering. And it can have enormous impact on somebody's livelihood and future. Could you go back for a second, <clears throat> please, <clears throat> excuse me, Joe Bernard, and tell our listeners what years does this affect? For what years of prosecutions for operating under the influence or operating with a breathalyzer over 0.08? June 11th, 2011, the rollout of the 9510 through April 18th, 2019. And, and the 9510 is the breathalyzer machine model, right? The Draeger alcohol test 9510. In Massachusetts, that's the only breath test we use, the machine. That's the only breath test machine we use. And I'm really glad Bill asked you about that. When are we talking about? But to me, I don't know, a layperson, how could they have confidence? Uh, You're you're presented with an option. You're going to lose your license if you don't take that breath test, right, for a period of time. It's going to be suspended for a period of time. So you have to make a decision. And what if you've lost confidence because... Between the drug labs and and the this, uh, where machines were they were knowingly deceiving prosecutors as well as judges, not just defense attorneys and defendants, about the unreliability of these machines. What? How could we know that's not going to happen again? I'm hearing this more and more. More and more people come into the office refusing the breath test because they've completely lost confidence in the reliability. Now, understand these people. I just got off the phone five minutes ago with an individual, three-year loss of license because he refused, and he was very uncomfortable with taking the breath test. That case, I will probably either win at trial or it will be dismissed. The video was exonerating. But here's a man who's lost his license for over a year because he had no confidence, and there's what, what, what remedy does he have? Because refusing the test has a different penalty than the underlying charge, right? Two different sets. You're absolutely correct. So there's the administrative penalty the Registry of Motor Vehicles has. And the Registry of Motor Vehicles doesn't care that you were found not guilty and not guilty and not guilty. You refuse the test. Therefore, your license is suspended. The fact that you had a good reason. I don't trust the test. Look at all this information that we know about how these tests are messed up. Well, that doesn't matter. And the the last clause in Bill's sentence is, because the law says it's not a right to drive a motor vehicle, it's a privilege, and therefore the state, the Commonwealth, 
can determine the circumstances under which If the registry of... tells me that one more time, I think I'm going to be sick to my stomach. But yes, <laughs> that's what they constantly say. Th that said, I would like to know this. You mentioned the endpoint, 2019, for the use of this test. Correct. Do you think that the test that is now being used, the breathalyzer test, is in fact accurate? Or is that a question you don't want to... I, I don't mind with? answering. I will tell you this, that there are some safeguards... That, the, that, that our litigation over the last years put in place that I can tell you that I'm more confident there have been big improvements with the lab. There's no doubt about it. This is Dan. I have a question for you. I'm not a lawyer, but I want to understand this. Why was the state police lab the one calibrating these machines that didn't work out? Why were they given that authority? Yeah. The fox guarding the hen house, and that's been my big war cry. Independent laboratories across the country are becoming more and more prevalent. The governor actually has a forensic science board that I just presented to two, two days ago about this very subject. The independence of our laboratories needs to take real prominent conversation. What we instituted here was we an ombudsman, and that ombudsman is supposedly quasi-independent, does not necessarily work for anyone, but is there monitoring the situation. And I will tell you, Dan, improved. Is it perfect? No. What we should have, to be very frank with you, is a complete independent lab, separate and apart from police officers running around and them but, working for the police. But, but then, the, you know, in that situation where it's independent, then the police can trust, hey, this independent agency has calibrated this, has approved it for use, and so thus what I am giving you is what the machine is, is, is giving you. You nailed you it. And the, and, the, can't, and the citizens and the defense and right. the judges, everything. And this is happening across the country. Massachusetts needs to get on board and I think develop a, a whole new crime lab that is independent from, from the police. So we don't have that cognitive built-in bias right. that they're working for a guilty as opposed to the true answer. Right. Could, could you clarify this for me, please, Joe Bernard? Is the problem with these tests, is that a problem with the machine, the box itself, or is this a problem with the state police failing to calibrate the machine, but the machine itself functionally, fundamentally, is not a problem? I would say both, but the judge disagreed with that former. In other words, the judge said, Bernard, the scientific aspect, the underpinning of breath testing is okay. This machine scientifically is okay, but it's as only as good as you take care and calibrate it. So the answer to your question is, it really went to the complete uh, dysfunction and, and incompetence of the, of the state police to maintain and calibrate the machine. That was the decision. We are speaking with attorney Joe Bernard, who together with his client, Lindsay Hallinan, and other lawyers who were part of his team, uh, got the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court to say that 27,000 people, it's a huge number of lives who have been impacted by an unreliable breath test, have a right to a new trial. We're going to continue our conversation with Joe Bernard right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty. 
though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. Stone by stone, you'll build that Goshen stone patio. You'll have it done by 4th of July. That was the plan last summer, or was it the summer before? You started, but where do the weekends go? Call Beyond Landscape, the Take Back Your Weekend people. They'll build that patio and the pond and the new garden. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Make a plan. Budget it over a few years. You have so many ideas. Beyond Landscape makes them happen. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Joe Bernard, who succeeded at the Supreme Judicial Court in having the court state and declare that 27,000 operating under the influence cases are subject to being vacated and have the opportunity for new trials because of the failure of the Massachusetts State Police to keep the breathalyzer tests in a condition that they are reliable and that anyone could actually say, yes, they got the test right. To keep they, the machine in to keep the machine office. functioning. Right. So what exactly did the state police do or not do, Joe Bernard? And what are they supposed to do? So the machine, any measuring device needs to be calibrated. Calibration essentially means it's tested to particular standards and it's, it's producing a result that is accurate, reliable and accurate. What the state police were not doing and, a, and kind of a fundamental underpinning of any calibration lab is what we call protocols, like a recipe to bake a cake. And they had none. They didn't tell anybody this. They had none. The pro and that was a big problem. It was a big problem because those machines needed to be calibrated with a protocol, not with chemist number one doing one thing and chemist number two doing another. So the machine itself is supposed to be calibrated by the state police. How many machines are they supposed to calibrate? How many did they calibrate? Do we know? Well, every machine in the Commonwealth has to be calibrated once a year. Now, there were, there were times where the Drager company had six months in their operating manual. That has since changed. They're consistent. Now, once a year, that machine has to go in for calibration. I just and the want to point out there is an Office of Alcohol Testing whose responsibility is to make sure that every machine that's used in the Commonwealth 
is functioning properly. And that, are, and are these the machines that the police have in their cruisers, or, their, or are these the machines that are in the police stations? In the police station. And, and it's a, the Draeger 9510, and there's two, there's two different sensors. One is the, what we call the uh, IR, the infrared sensor, and then the fuel cell. And those machines are the machines, the, what we call the evidentiary breath tests, not the ones in the cruisers, but those machines. Because the ones that are in the cruisers are not admissible in court. That's that, why they're not evidentiary. But the ones that are in the police stations, those are the ones that have to be calibrated because those are the ones that are admissible in court. And if you're over 0.08, you're guilty. That is correct. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. Um, I get We only have a couple minutes left, and I want to make sure, Joe Bernard, if someone out there is listening to you right now, and they think that they might have been in the pool of people, that 27,000, what should they do? Well, they can, they can certainly call their lawyer who represented them if they remember. But if, they're, if they're, they don't know, I'm telling you, the Committee for Public Counsel Services from the Berkshires to Boston has people there to answer your questions. Okay, what is the Committee for Public Counsel Services and how do people get in touch with it? You can Google it. And they're actually, um, if you, uh, at mass.gov, we have set up uh, a web page where we have contact information for anyone. If you go on mass.gov, for anyone to access the number and to get relief. You are Joe Bernard. How do people get in touch with you if they want to talk about this or any matter involving criminal law in particular? OUI operating under the influence. So we, we, we represent people from the Berkshires all the way to Boston. You can call me at my office. And, you know, we don't charge everybody money necessarily. If you need some guidance, my, my office is there to help. Um, and my main office is in downtown Springfield on Monarch Place. You can Google. My number is 413-731-9995. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I'd be glad to help. Joseph Bernard. Um, and so finally... How much of your practice does not involve these 27,000 cases right now? So all we do is we concentrate only on impaired operation. We do a great, it has to do, my practice has a lot to do with blood draws, scientific reliability of blood draws, uh, anything to do with operating that car, what, whether you're impaired or a license issue, that's, that's exclusively all my practice is about. His name is Joseph Bernard. He's an attorney in Springfield at Monarch Place, and he's a specialist in impaired operation. And he is responsible, along with his client, Lindsay Hallinan, and a number of other lawyers who rolled up their sleeves and made it possible for 27,000 people convicted of OUIs to question the reliability of the evidence leading to their conviction. Thank you so much for being with us, Joe. Thank you, listeners, for being with us on Talk to Talk. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. 
Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website Northampton at WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a